The following Rarecast podcast is made possible through support from the Global Genes Corporate Alliance. The members of the Corporate Alliance support Global Genes' mission and programs, work to meet the vital needs of people with rare diseases, and address inequities they face. To learn more about the Corporate Alliance or how your organization can become a member, join us at globalgenes.org and choose Corporate Alliance under the About tab. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. A serious adverse event in the first patient treated with an experimental genome editing therapy for sickle cell disease marked the beginning of the end for Graphite Bio. The company discontinued development of the treatment and eventually entered into a reverse merger with Lens Therapeutics with a focus on improving vision. At the end of 2023, Kamau Therapeutics emerged from stealth following a strategic transaction with Graphite Bio that provided the new company with all of Graphite's genome editing assets, including its next-generation platform technology and its lead program, a hematopoietic stem cell therapy engineered to restore adult hemoglobin by correcting a genetic mutation in people with sickle cell disease. We spoke to Matthew Porteous, co-founder of Graphite Bio and co-founder and CEO of Kamau Therapeutics, about the company's genome editing technology. What's now understood about the adverse event that occurred in the graphite bioclinical trial and the development path forward for the therapy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, gene editing, and Kamau's efforts to develop next-generation gene editing technology. Sickle cell disease was the first disease to be diagnosed as a a genetic condition. It's been more than 100 years since then, but it's only recently that we've seen a surge of activity around the development of potentially significant therapies, including the recent approval of the first CRISPR therapy and a cell therapy. What's happened to change the landscape for treatments and therapeutic development for the condition? Yeah, thank you. It, it really is an, it's such an important disease uh, for the patients that have it, but also it's been just a seminal disease for understanding of the interaction between genetics, human biology, disease. Um, and as you mentioned, it's it's been that way for decades. Um, it's been recognized uh, for its its genetics and, and the complicated interactions with the environment. But really, we were waiting for the right technology to address this disease at the genetic uh, basis at its, uh, you know, so that we could um, address a genetic disease with a genetic therapy. Um, And so, you know, the two approvals in December, which is super exciting for the field and for patients, um, one is based on using a lentiviral vector to add a gene to, to counteract um, the sickle cell gene, and that's based on a, a you know lentiviral delivery, which is 
um, been around for uh, a couple decades. However, it, like all technologies, it's been refined and optimized. So it, it achieved the results we wanted, you know, achieved the results that are beneficial to patients and, and justified its approval. But the other, t the, the other approval for Cascavi or the Exocel um, uh, uh, drug was based on, on genome editing. And as you said, CRISPR-Cas9. Um, the amazing thing is CRISPR-Cas9 as an engineered nuclease was first reported in a test tube in 2012. And to see a test tube discovery translated into a therapy in you know, just over a decade is rather remarkable. Now, what I will say about uh, the Cascavi approval is while it's using CRISPR-Cas9, it is uh, doing it in a way that builds on, again, um, tons of research and understanding of the, of the biology of the disease. Most notably, uh, the recognition that if you couldn't directly correct the sickle cell mutation, was there a way to use genome editing that could counteract the sickle hemoglobin, the pathologic sickle hemoglobin? From clinical research, it had been uh, known that patients with sickle cell disease that had higher levels of fetal hemoglobin, the, the hemoglobin that's normally expressed before we're born, but normally gets turned off after we're born, if some of that uh, stays turned on, those patients who have higher levels um, have a less severe disease. That led to the uh, development of the, uh, a drug called hydroxyurea, a, a 70, 80-year-old chemotherapy drug that works by upregulating fetal hemoglobin in ways we don't still fully understand. And again, patients who take a small molecule drug, a chemotherapy drug every day, have higher levels of fetal hemoglobin and their disease is less severe. So if you couldn't correct the mutation, and, and I hope later we'll talk about how one day we're gonna directly correct the mutation, was there a way to use genome editing to sort of enhance this fetal hemoglobin uh, effect? And for that, we, we turned to another line of uh, research, um, which was understanding how fetal hemoglobin is turned off uh, after birth and using a combination of biochemistry, genomics, human genetics, the scientists identified that a transcription, transcriptional repressor called BC11A would get turned after birth, would get turned on in red blood cells. It would bind to the fetal hemoglobin or gamma globin promoter and turn that off, allowing the beta globin or adult hemoglobin to get turned on. <clears throat> so now we have a, a proof of concept that fetal hemoglobin can uh, significantly improve the course of disease. We have uh, human genetics and biochemistry identifying a pathway that if you could interfere with it, might keep fetal hemoglobin turned on uh, at higher levels and for longer than what normally happens. And so then people started using the tools of genome editing, uh, zinc finger nucleases and CRISPR-Cas9 to try to interfere with this BCL11A pathway. And Cascavi uh, is based on identifying that if you make a mutation in 
a specific regulatory region of uh, the BCL11A gene such that it no longer gets turned on in red blood cells, that results in developing red blood cells, making more fetal hemoglobin. So you're essentially inhibiting an inhibitor uh, in red blood cells to turn on fetal hemoglobin that compensates or blocks the, the, the pathologic effects of sickle hemoglobin. And again, um, uh, that was shown in, in uh, tens of patients uh, to not only uh, seem to be safe over a, short, a relatively short period of time, um, but highly effective. They, these patients have dramatically changed uh, lives. Their, their daily lives, uh, which are, were, were often dominated by uh, worries or real pain, um, now are, are the, the pain episodes are significantly less and some patients even seemingly disappeared. And that uh, justified and it makes it very exciting to see this now as an approved drug for patients. So I, I realize I just rambled a bit, but I, I think the story is so neat that it, it weaves together so much to come to this really exciting new drug. Well, let, let's take a step back for listeners not familiar with sickle cell disease. Yeah. What is it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I jumped, jumped ahead. So sickle cell disease is a, a genetic disease. It's what we call an autosomal recessive disease, meaning if you have uh, most genes in, in, in our body, in our DNA, the, the DNA is the code for how cells behave. Um, you, most genes, we have two copies of them. Uh, this is a recessive disease, which means you have to have the, uh, both, both copies have to have the sickle variant. The, the variation is in a, a protein called beta globin. Beta globin is a protein that's uh, uh, part of uh, a hemoglobin molecule and hemoglobin fills up red blood cells. And the role of hemoglobin is to take uh, oxygen from our lungs to our tissues. So our brains and muscles and all the tissues of our body work properly. In um, sickle cell disease, um, that hemoglobin molecule, which is basically uh, near crystalline in terms of its high, high concentrations in red blood cells, when it unloads its oxygen uh, uh, to tissues like it's supposed to do, it picks up oxygen and delivers oxygen, just like adult hemoglobin. Hemoglobin A is what most of us carry. Um, the term for the sickle hemoglobin is hemoglobin S. When, when a, a, a person with sickle cell disease has, um, when they, their, their red blood cells take up oxygen, delivers to tissues, and then after it delivers the oxygen, the hemoglobin molecule changes shape, um, and that's normal. But the, what's not normal is, is when the sickle hemoglobin changes shape, it starts to polymerize. It binds to itself. And so instead of being in sort of a, a liquid mass, it forms polymers. Um, and these polymers change the shape of the red blood cells so that they're not able to get through the blood vessels uh, uh, very efficiently. In fact, can even cause uh, blockages, what we call occlusions or vaso-occlusions, which then prevents other red blood cells from getting through and delivering oxygen uh, to the tissues uh, that need it. Um, what this results in is that, the, that patients or people with sickle cell disease 
uh, don't get enough oxygen to their bones uh, at, uh, occasionally, and this causes these deep, painful uh, crises, um, really deep throbbing pain. And um, you listen to uh, patients describe the pain, and as I said, they call it prolonged, very deep, persistent, um, and can be unrelenting, can last for, for days or weeks. But it also can cause the um, inability to deliver oxygen to other tissues. Um, and so you can get strokes, you can get um, uh, uh, crises in your lungs, so you're not able to uh, uh, breathe very well. It can cause damage to um, your kidneys. So this, uh, it, so the, the disease is based in red blood cells, but the manifestation of these uh, abnormally behemic behaving red blood cells is to cause the organs of the body to be damaged uh, progressively and inevitably over time. The lifespan of people with sickle cell disease in the United States is in the median lifespan. So that, you know, 50% of people live longer and 50% of the people live shorter uh, is around 40, the mid forties. The lifespan for people with sickle cell disease in Africa though um, where most patients with sickle cell disease uh, live is in the first decade of life um, because they do not have access to the medical therapies to help um, them get through these crises that I just described. And what's it actually like to live with this condition? Yeah, so I can only report on what I've heard uh, patients tell me. Um, and there is some variability to this. So not every patient has the same experience or the same trajectory. But the um, generally, uh, so first of all, patients, they're, when, they're do, when they're feeling good, they are just like everyone else. They are just, they're normal human beings. But when they have these crises, which can happen out of the blue, they can also be triggered by being a little dehydrated or getting a little cold or who knows why, um, they, they can develop uh, this, these pains in their bones. And it can be, uh, you know, their thigh bones, their rib bones, their, their back, um, uh, their hips. And sometimes the pain is uh, manageable with, say, some Tylenol and ibuprofen, Sometimes uh, it needs uh, more uh, stronger uh, pain medicines, but they can still uh, take the medicines at home. Um, sometimes the pain is so significant, they need to, to go into the emergency room and get even stronger pain medicines. And occasionally the pain is so strong that not only do the stronger pain medicines in the emergency room not work, but they have to be admitted to the hospital to re receive continuous high doses of, of pain medicines, opiates, um, to just control their pain so they can even, you know, just so it's tolerable. And that the duration of these episodes can be uh, highly variable from being very short where they don't come to attention, you know, attention to the medical system to, as I said, uh, patients who can be in the hospital for weeks at a time. In January 2023, Graphite Bio, which you co-founded, reported a significant adverse event in the first patient yeah. dosed with its experimental therapy for sickle cell disease. What happened? 
Yeah, so let me step back a little bit. So um, the the approved drug in December using CRISPR-Cas9, uh, I described upregulates fetal hemoglobin to counteract um, the, the sickle hemoglobin, but it doesn't do uh, anything directly to uh, the, 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 the mutation uh, that causes sickle cell disease. We, we believe that the long-term uh, best therapy for sickle cell disease using gene editing is not to um, counteract by increasing fetal hemoglobin, but instead go directly to the root cause and change the sickle gene to the adult normal adult gene or the non-sickle adult gene. Um, using CRISPR-Cas9 to start the process, but using something called homology-directed repair to actually uh, repair the mutation. And so this was a program that was developed uh, in my lab and then uh, licensed into graphite bio. And they treated a patient um, and the the patient received uh, cells that had been engineered where the the mutation was corrected. and then received uh, her own cells uh, back as part of a, what we call an autologous, meaning the cells are her own um, or the patient's own bone marrow transplant. Now as part of a bone marrow transplant, and this is true with all of the sickle cell disease gene therapies and gene editing therapies, one has to give high doses of chemotherapy to get rid of the stem cells, the blood stem cells that are in the bone marrow. We want to make space for the new genetically engineered cells to take and engraft and, and make non-sickling red blood cells. So that's a shared feature of Lifgenia that was approved in Cascadi and the, the graphite process. The drug's called Nulacell. Um, now, following that sort of chemotherapy and following the infusion of, of the patient's own cells, there's a period of, in which um, the the, the bone marrow is not making blood cells, not making blood cells like white blood cells to fight infections or red blood cells uh, to, um, uh, to deliver oxygen or platelets to, to deal with clotting. Um, but eventually the new cells will um, engraft and start making the new blood cells. What happened last January was that um, the patient uh, was taking a prolonged period of time to make enough red blood cells and platelets uh, on on its own. On the bone marrow needed to uh, wasn't making enough of those cells, and so the patient was still uh, requiring transfusions. Um, and so that that condition was called pancytopenia, meaning multiple low blood counts. Now. Since Jan- and, and as a public company, um, Graphite was required uh, to report this event, um, and it caused you know, a lot of disappointment. Um, since that time, however, the patient's blood counts have recovered, um, and she is no longer needing um, platelets, um, and she's no longer needing platelet transfusions or red blood cell transfusions, and um, she has got blood counts that show that she no longer has sickle cell disease. Um, And so the time it took for her to get there um, uh, was longer than we had hoped and longer than what is um, going to be needed if we want to deliver this to um, hundreds or thousands of patients. But eventually, uh, she got to a very good place.
Come out launched at the end of 2023 with assets from Graphit Bio. Come out's taking a different approach. You talked a, a little about the homology directed repair. How different is the approach that Kamau's taking relative to what else we've seen in the area of gene editing for sickle cell disease? Yeah, so um, yes, Kamau is um, taking over where uh, graphite uh, left off um, because the, the patient has ended up in a good spot and because we've learned so much from her, um, the company uh, and, you know, my my co-founders, myself, and, and our first employees are um, optimistic that with the, what, what we've learned and approved from, from the first patient, we can apply this homology-directed repair process uh, even more efficiently in the next patients. And Kamau is looking forward uh, to um, implementing this improved process uh, in the next patients in, in the next year or so. Um, sorry, I missed the second part of your question. Well, what advantages does this approach have over what else we've seen within the yeah. gene editing space? Yeah. So there's two, uh, two uh, advantages. One is clear. Uh, the clear advantage is, is that um, we remove the sickle uh, hemoglobin from the blood uh, by using HDR because, yes, we add hemoglobin A, but we remove hemoglobin S. And so the first patient um, on, uh, with this HDR approach with NuloCell has a hemoglobin S right now of, of less than 5%. So almost, uh, so, so low, it would not cause any uh, signs or symptoms or, or manifestations of sickle cell disease. In uh, Kaskevi, um, the amount of residual sickle hemoglobin is ranging between 50 and 60%. So there's still a significant amount of sickle hemoglobin in the blood, which can cause continue, which might continue to cause some problems, including occasional pain crises or uh, some residual hemolysis or uh, hemolysis means the red blood cells being destroyed um, prematurely. Um, so we, 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 we think, and when you talk to, um, uh, you know, different people have different opinions, but I think most people would agree that if one could achieve uh, um, a very low level of hemoglobin S, that would be uh, even better than just reducing it to 60%. The other um, potential uh, advantage is that um, hemoglobin A uh, is the natural hemoglobin that we carry in adults. Uh, fetal hemoglobin is the hemoglobin that uh, is normally only in fetuses. Um, so there are uh, people uh, who have a, a condition called hereditary persistence of fetal, hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin that do have higher levels of fetal hemoglobin, and they seem to do well. But they're very rare, they're very rare people. And we don't really know that uh, it will be perfectly normal to have high levels of fetal hemoglobin uh, for decades or as you get older. So that's more of a theoretic concern. Um, and we'll, we'll learn uh, over time, but it's clearly going to be better to have less uh, hem hemoglobin S 
better for your blood, better for your blood vessels, better for your better for your tissues. What does the Nula cell therapy consist of, and what does it take to prepare it? Yeah, so um, Nula cell is similar to some of the other uh, gene therapies, so um, and gene editing therapies. So the first thing is that the patient has to um, have their sickle cell disease uh, calm down. Uh, sickle cell disease, because of all the, uh, um, the processes I described, creates what we call sort of a, an inflammatory state. There's sort of a level of activation, uh, physiologic activation in the cells that um, uh, we want to calm down. So it takes a few months of by giving patients what we call exchange transfusions, where we replace their uh, the blood that they're making with uh, non-sickle cell blood to calm the sickle cell disease down. That then makes it safe to undergo the next step, which is to mobilize their stem cells out of their bone marrow into their blood. So our normal blood stem cells um, live in the bone marrow. Um, that's where our, most of our blood is made. Um, but but the biologic property of, of, of blood stem cells or hematopoietic stem cells is, is that they will come out of the bone marrow, circulate in the blood, and then go back to the bone marrow. And we've learned that we can give a, a drug called plurexophore that will stimulate the blood stem cells to come out of the bone marrow and into the blood. And then this allows us um, to then um, connect the patient to what we call a phoresis machine, um, where the blood is uh, pulled out of uh, the patient. Uh, it is processed in a way so that the uh, red blood cells are given back, but the white blood cells and stem cells are, are, are uh, put into a bag. Um, and that's called, uh, you know, so we have mobilization to mobilize the stem cells out of the bone marrow into the blood, and then phoresis to purify uh, the stem cells uh, in the blood into a bag. Now, there's a lot of other cells um, in that bag of blood. Um, the next step is, is that phoresis product, as I said, is, is a mixture of a lot of different cells. In fact, the uh, stem and, and progenitor cells that we want to engineer are just a small fraction of the total number of cells in, in, in that bag. So the next step is, is that the... Um, CD34 cells, which is a protein that marks stem and progenitor cells, are, are selected for on a magnetic column. So now we have a, a concentrated uh, preparation of cells um, that um, are stem and progenitor cells. This is common between all of the protocols uh, that, that um, all of them go share this. It is at this next step that uh, the different engineering uh, pro uh, processes begin to differ. So in NULA cell, these CD34 cells are um, grown in, 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 in basically in a bag or in a bioreactor um, for a couple days to get them prepared for the genome editing process for the HDR process. Um, they then have the CRISPR-Cas9 molecule uh, delivered into them uh, via a process called electroporation. And then we uh, deliver the, a, a, a sequence of DNA um, 
that serves as the template for the homology directed repair process. So let me step uh, back. So the CRISPR-Cas9 makes a, makes a break in the DNA right near this sickle cell uh, variation. Um, and that break in the DNA triggers the cell to repair the break. And it can either repair the break by just uh, sticking the two ends back together, which, uh, which can be both inaccurate and accurate, or it can repair the break by homology-directed repair. But to repair, but to use homology-directed repair, it needs to have a undamaged uh, piece of DNA um, to, to use as a template. And so that's what we provide um, along with uh, the CRISPR-Cas9. And then the cell uh, spontaneously will fix the CRISPR-Cas9 break by homology-directed repair and convert the sickle hemoglobin gene to the adult hemoglobin gene. Um, that process takes uh, 24 hours. Um, and then that whole bag of that bioreactor full of cells, which is not a few cells, it's hundreds of millions or over a billion cells, is then frozen away in a safe way. Um, and the product gets tested to make sure uh, that what we want to has occurred, has occurred at the frequency that we think is um, good, that there hasn't been something abnormal that's occurred, make, making sure that we didn't uh, create a genetic change we didn't want to see, and, as well as making sure that after this processing, the, 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 the cells haven't been contaminated or in, in any way. This is what's called quality control. If uh, the, the the product passes quality control, um, then it will be released to be infused into the patient. It's so that's how the that's how Nula cell is manufactured. I can go into then what happens to Nula cell after that, if you want. Well, please. Yeah. What what does happen and, and how does it work? Yeah. So. The next step is once the Nula cell drug product, the cell product is, a, is cleared, uh, having passed all the quality control tests, um, the doctor and patient uh, arranges for the patient to come in uh, to the hospital. Um, and the patient then gets uh, uh, chemotherapy. We use a drug called busulfan, which is a very strong chemotherapy drug that um, destroys um, the uh, stem and progenitor cells in the bone marrow to create space for Nula cell or any other uh, genetically engineered cell. Now, the, the, the problem with busulfan is while it destroys the bone marrow cells, it also uh, can damage um, the lining of our mouth and our intestines, causing mucositis. It can cause um, some other side effects because it's, it's chemotherapy. Um, nonetheless, this is the best way we know in, 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 in 2024 about how to, how to do the bone marrow transplant. Um, we hope in the future, and I'm optimistic in the future, we'll be able to replace busulfan with something that's less harsh, but has the same beneficial, uh, same effects. But once the patient has received the busulfan and the busulfan has uh, been cleared from the body, uh, now uh, patients get a, the Nula cell uh, cells. Now we call it a, a stem cell transplant, uh, and I'm actually I am a, a pediatric stem cell transplant doctor, uh, but we're not surgeons. Uh, 
we can uh, do our transplant in a very simple way, which is uh, we infuse uh, the cells through um, uh, uh, an intravenous uh, by into the vein. Um, we don't have to stick the cells straight back into the bone. We can put the cells into the bloodstream by just a transfusion. Um, and the property of the cells is that they'll go find the bone on their own. They'll go find their natural home on their own. And so they'll come out of the blood and into the bone and set up shop. Now, it takes some time uh, for, like I said, for those cells to uh, start um, setting up shop and making more of themselves and making more mature red blood cells. And during that time, uh, the patient is at um, high risk for an infection and may need uh, platelet and red blood cell transfusions. So during this time, while the new cells are in what we call engrafting, um, the patient needs to be in the hospital to be safe. Um, and they need to make sure they are monitored for infections and um, making sure they get enough nutrition and hydration um, and monitoring for any uh, side effects from the chemotherapy, the busulfan. But eventually, the, the new cells do take and white blood cells uh, start to be made. And we know from, uh, uh, yeah, I guess we're going on uh, 50 years of bone marrow transplant now, that once the white blood cell level reaches a certain number, that the patient is then safe to leave the hospital. The risk for getting an infection is much, much lower, such that it's safe enough for, leave, for them to leave the hospital. So then they are able to leave the hospital. Um, they, they usually then stay close by the hospital in case um, something turns up. But the longer they go without anything um, turning up and the stronger their bone marrow gets, they then can go home and then they get regular checkups. And then as they do better and better, the checkups are spread out um, uh, more and more. Um, so eventually they're, they're only seen, um, you know, every few months or every year. So that's, that, that's sort of the trajectory that a patient goes through. And what's known about the therapy from the, the work you've done to date? It's known um, in, so what we know from uh, preclinically, that is from what um, uh, the studies that we do before we've uh, treated a patient is uh, that the, the HDR process can be very efficient. We can get uh, correction frequencies of, of 50% or, or even higher of the, of the genes corrected. We know that um, when we correct it in the stem and progenitor cells and we make red blood cells, um, in, a, in, in the laboratory, uh, that they make red blood cells that don't have sickle hemoglobin. And um, we know the cells, when we put them, uh, the human cells, when we ask, can they engraft and can they make, um, show signs of functionality, uh, they can do that in preclinical tests. But ultimately, there's only so much you can do before you have to um, uh, before you have to, you know, test it in a patient. We also know um, that the process itself uh, does not generate any changes in the genome that are particularly worrisome. So before a uh, really important part of evaluating any uh, gene editing uh, drug before you test it in patients is to do a, a variety of different assays or different ways of measuring safety. 
um, and the FDA has uh, provided uh, an overview or a guidance of the types of safety assays they want to see uh, before uh, they would say it, it is uh, um, you've given enough evidence to begin uh, testing in a patient. So we knew all of, we had gone through all of that uh, um, before we treated the first patient. Um, and then after the first, then the, from the first patient, we learned, you know, how quickly did the cells uh, engraft and generate white blood cells, I discussed how it took longer than expected to generate red blood cells and platelets, but now they're doing that. And we learned um, sort of the, uh, how the overall process uh, worked in the first patient. And from that first patient have learned an enormous amount and are implementing changes in, in both how we, the number of cells we'll, we'll make for the next patient. We've learned how to make the cells uh, even uh, more efficiently. And we've learned how to provide the right uh, medicines to the patient after they receive the cells. So we hope that the next patient will get the same effect, but will achieve, uh, it will be achieved in a much uh, quicker timeline. What's the development path forward? So the development path forward is, um, as I said, we learned from the first uh, patient that we needed to improve our manufacturing. Um, that new manufacturing process is in hand. And so now we need to transfer that manufacturing process to what we call a, a CDMO or contract development and manufacturing organization. These are uh, private uh, organizations that specialize in making cells. That's their job. Uh, and so we are in the process of showing that this improved uh, version 2.0 process can be made in the CDMO. We will, they will have to show uh, that they can do this reproducibly and reliably. That data will uh, be compiled and submitted to the FDA um, saying we've changed our manufacturing and we have, here's the uh, data and science behind why this product uh, shows improved properties, uh, you know, preclinically. Um, and we propose to use this new process to treat the next patient. And we, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic and confident that, um, you know, and, and, you know, having worked uh, with the FDA now for several years that um, that they will approve it. I also expect there'll be some back and forth um, because that's their job. And we hope to, um, you know, achieve this uh, approval of the new manufacturing process to treat the next patient um, in a, this year in 2024. And, and we hope we will be able to treat um, the next patient with an improved new LaSalle um, in the early part of 2025. Of course, you know, the team and I are always working hard to uh, do this as fast and but as safe and as effectively as possible. How have the recent approvals affected your ability to garner interest in the development of this therapy? Has it helped? Has it dampened it? it it's been both, to be honest. And, and I think this is good. We have a we have a new standard, uh, and so I think where it's helped is it has shown that a CRISPR drug can get through the developmental pipeline and be approved, 
and have a real beneficial effect on patients. Um, so that that's generated a lot of excitement where it's, um, uh, I won't say hindered, but what it's set a bar is we have to show uh, scientifically why we think Nulacell would be the next generation, the next improved therapy beyond Kaskevi. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the idea of um, not just uh, increasing fetal hemoglobin and leaving hemoglobin S behind, but replacing sickle hemoglobin with hemoglobin A. We believe that's the next uh, generation and improved CRISPR therapy uh, for sickle cell disease. How far will existing funding take you and what's the plan for raising additional capital? Yeah, we're in the midst of raising our capital right now. Um, so um, uh, so I, I can't provide any details at this point. Uh, sorry about that. But what we're targeting uh, is to raise capital um, to get through the next handful of patients. Uh, we have learned from other um, uh, CRISPR uh, drugs, uh, including Cascavi uh, uh, when it was called Exacel, that a small number of patients, uh, a handful of patients or fewer, can generate um, the data that then uh, allows you to um, do two things. Uh, one is it allows you then to talk to the FDA about what would be the measurements you would want to see in patients to one day get approval. And it allows you to generate the excitement to raise the capital to do that next uh, pivotal trial. Matt Porteous, co-founder and CEO of Kamau. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. And I, I hope I have enough exciting data in the future that you'll invite me back. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.